This podcast is brought to you by the American Enterprise Institute. If you like what you hear, please subscribe, rate, review, and share. Thanks for listening. Here's our show. What in the hell's going on? What the hell is going on? What the hell is going on? <laughs> I don't know what the hell he's talking about. You don't have to know what the hell is on it. What the hell's the matter with these guys? We don't know what's going on. What the hell's going on? Who in God's name knows what it's all about? Mark Deason. Welcome to our podcast, What the Hell is Going On, Election What the Hell Part 2. <laughs> so, Mark. So, Part 2 is the Democrats. <laughs> They're really what? Part 1. Yeah. But here, I mean, the Democrats did better than expected. And as a result, they're, as expected, taking all the wrong lessons from their ability to survive what should have been a red wave and ended up being a red trickle, except in Florida where it was indeed a red wave. And so they're starting to think we're doing everything right. And Joe Biden, he's been vindicated and uh, he's going to run for re-election possibly. And I certainly think that if they had suffered a devastating defeat on Tuesday, that the open calls for him to step aside would have started. And now not only are those calls not happening, but I think Joe Biden's going to run again. Oh, I um, do too. I, I agree. Because that man is one of the least self-aware people I've ever met. <laughs> <laughs> and there was a great Saturday Night Live sketch a couple of weeks ago before the Democrats did so unexpectedly well, or we could say the Republicans did so unexpectedly I think badly. That's a better way to say it. Better yes. way and more accurate way to say it in the midterm. And it was, you know, all of these, we'll hyperlink it in the transcript, but it was all of these young people going, well, Joe Biden, he's too, you know, old and gross and he can't run again. He's so out of touch. Do you see him fall off that bike? And then they start going through all of the alternatives and they're like, Kamala, no way. <laughs> <laughs> Amy Klobuchar, oh my God, no. You know, and they go through the list and they're like, you know who looks really good? Joe Biden. <laughs> well, and it's true because, so, that's you it. know, it's if true. you look at why did they nominate him in the first place? Right. To let, dislike him because he was in his basement. He was the candidate. He was the genial, moderate facade for the left-wing tilt of the party that could appeal to disaffected Trump voters who uh, don't like MAGA but don't like the leftward tilt of the Democratic right. Party. And so that's still what he is today, except, of course, the, the facade has been lifted. Uh, the Democrats have gone full left and he's embraced it. But another important outcome, and this came up in our conversation last week with Josh Karshauer, is voters were really surprising, even shockingly willing to say, they thought the president was mentally incompetent, and they thought he was doing a terrible job, but they were still willing to vote for his party. That's also great news for Joe Biden. Fox News voter analysis, which, by the way, is the best. It's done with the AP. It's the best. It's not an exit poll. It's, it's literally hundreds of thousands of people being questioned over a period of time. And they found six in 10 voters said that Joe Biden is not mentally fit to be president of the United States. And still and voted Democrat. <laughs> no, I mean, look, but again, you know, I keep quoting this. I said this in our Substack last week. It's really true. The Democrats didn't win. The Republicans lost. And I think the problem is the Democrats thought they won. So that's the conversation we're going to have today. You want people to take the right lesson from this. Uh, we did. I think mm -hmm. we've taken the right lesson. Donald Trump is a scourge. You and I have. Yes. <laughs> I don't know if everybody has. I think the Democrats have taken exactly the opposite well, right I'll, lesson. I, will, I, I agree with you, but I'll tweak it a little bit, which is they, they did have the right strategy for the election, which is to run the anti-MAGA campaign, which worked very well. Super uh, they, well. They, they, Cynical, but, they, but I mean, successful. In its worst, it was 
entering Republican primaries and getting mega candidates nominated so they could defeat them. And that worked, unfortunately, because it's such a cynical and awful thing. They've worked very well because you can't, they were purging the Republican Party to turn away from MAGA and then nominating MAGA candidates to beat. But also the broader anti-MAGA campaign, what they don't seem to realize is that the whole anti-MAGA strategy is masking a deeper underlying problem they have, which is that the voters really don't like them very much. And they their do base blame is narrowing. Them. They do blame them for the serial disasters. They do think Biden is incompetent. And they also, they're losing a lot of their base. The minority uh, black and Latino voters inched over to the Republican Party broadly nationally during this election. Women came over 10 points in the Fox voter analysis to the Republican Party. So this strategy is masking some deeper problems that they have with their coalition. And if you want to see how much Take Florida and cut it off and separate it from the rest of the electorate and compare what happened in Florida, what happened nationally. So let me give you some numbers on Florida because I talked to DeSantis's campaign for my Washington Post column this week. And here's what they told me. So we know that DeSantis won re-election by 20 points, which is the largest a victory. slam dunk. A slam dunk. I mean, Florida, he's turned Florida into a Republican state, but he did it by winning almost every constituency in the state. He won independent voters by 20 points, which was a 30-point increase from his 2018 race. He won women by at least seven points. And I'm not saying women tilted over to him by seven points. He won by seven points among women. Mm -hmm. And that's a 16-point increase from 2018. He won Hispanic voters by 14 points, which is a 22-point increase from his last race. If we had those numbers nationally, it would have been a Republican route in this election. And so I think... What you saw in Florida was how Republicans can do when the Democrats can't run an anti-MAGA strategy, right? Right. (laughs) And so the Democrats' lesson is, looks like Trump's going to win. Let's join up with the mainstream media and promote his candidacy because that's the best thing they could have. They want to do what they did in those individual races to get Trump to run. They want to do nationally. I mean, I wouldn't be surprised to see a DNC running pro-Trump ads in Republican primaries the way they did for some of these congressional candidates. But the problem is Donald Trump is so willing to play that game, right? Donald Trump is their partner for all intents and purposes. He is the partner of the Democratic Party. In fact, I still remember uh, before he won in 2016, there were people who went around kind of supposing that he was actually part of a Democratic conspiracy to destroy the Republican Party. And all I can say is, I don't think that's true. But if it were, it's really smart. And (laughs) And it's it's been really (laughs) successful. Exactly. (laughs) Last thing before we turn to our guest, because we've got a really great guest with us this week, is just how interesting it is that there really is a divide between the Democratic spokesmen and Democrats on the ground. They like moderates, like Republicans. They really actually prefer to have a moderate, somebody who's not screaming and kicking, somebody who's not a jerk, somebody who's not about trying to knife their neighbor. And this lesson, I think, is so important. It's a namby-pamby word, moderate. Everybody hates a squish. Remember our late boss who used to say, only two things in the middle of the road, yellow lines and dead critters. And that, <laughs> yeah, everybody, but you know what? Yeah. The voters like them. And we should be listening to the voter. So I disagree with you slightly. Of course you always do. You because, are so because, not squishy. Because I always have to, because I, because I don't think that moderation is, is what it is. It's It's... It's not being a jerk, 
funny. So, so, you know, here, if <laughs> let's you... Be, let's be honest I, here. I will, uh, this, it's my favorite stat from the 2020 election, but I'll repeat it here, which is that Donald Trump in October 2020, 56% of Americans said they were better off now than they were four years ago. And that 56% of Americans didn't vote for Donald Trump. If they had, he would be president right now. So in his voter, mind, he is. I know that that's the that's part of the problem. But voters didn't reject Trumpism; they rejected Trump. They thought that Donald Trump was actually a very effective president with the, with the mute button on. They liked his policies. They liked his agenda. They liked the, the results it produced. They were better off. They just didn't like him. It was the to, it was his well, personality were, that was toxic. Right, so so what say. I'm saying is the lesson is different than what you're saying. The lesson is not to abandon Trumpism and to and embrace some sort of squishy moderation yes, of right. policy. It's to be conservatives without being assholes. Right. No, that's good. And, and uh, I that, can say that because we have a we have yeah, an right. explicit rating. That's right. And maybe that should maybe that should be the title of our next podcast, right? Conservative, not asshole. And so <laughs> <laughs> But let's talk about the liberals today. But like, that's exactly. what we're here to talk about. Exactly. So I hope uh, many of our guests will remember Rui Teixeira because he joined us along with Brian Katulis from the Center for American Progress when they were both scholars there. They're both no longer scholars there. Rui is actually now a colleague of ours at AEI, and Brian's headed off to the Middle East Institute. They have really one of my favorite, apart from our own, my favorite really thoughtful, intelligent uh, substacks called The Liberal Patriot, and we'll link to it, and we commend you to go and look at it. Rui is also the author of Where Have All the Democrats Gone with John Judas. That's a forthcoming uh, book, and I'm uh, really excited to see it. Here's our interview. Rui, welcome back to the podcast. Delighted to be here. Your first since joining AEI. Welcome. (laughs) Yeah, no, that's true. That's true. Who knew that was in the offing? Well, you know, these are strange days. Well, so, you are but a twinkle days. in our eyes, <laughs> <laughs> well, so to speak. Yeah, well, we're yeah. glad to have you at AEI, and we're glad to have you here. So we just had a midterm election that didn't go the way Republicans mm-hmm. hoped it would. But there's a silver lining for the right in that they held their gains with working class voters, white working class voters, and they made some gains with minorities. What You were one of the people who predicted the emerging Democratic majority composed of non-white voters, and you have got a great article in The Atlantic about why that's not happening. But talk to us about what happened on Tuesday and what you see happening in this demographic. Yeah, well, if you look at the broad national trends, if you compare, you look at the AP VoteCast data and compare 2018 to 2022, it's clear that the Democrats continued to lose ground with Hispanic voters and with working class voters by like 17 or 18 points. So obviously we're going from a really good election for the Democrats to a not so good election, even though under the circumstances pretty good, but the swings are, are quite large. Uh, and it does appear like the bleeding uh, for the Democrats among these voters uh, more or less continued in this election. And to some extent, what, what helped the Democrats is that, especially, I think, in these competitive races, though we don't have the best data on that yet, it looks like their college-educated vote held up pretty well, particularly their white college-educated vote, which is consistent with a lot of other data we saw going into the election. So. I think the Democrats, uh, you know, had a pretty good strategy for for this election based on, you know, maybe not trying to do something about the underlying working class trends, but trying to do uh, basically build in their strengths among these relatively educated liberal voters. Uh, they got a gift in the Dobbs decision, which put abortion squarely 
uh, in the middle of the ballot. And uh, a lot of the candidates, I think, uh, Democratic candidates, competitive races did a pretty good job of not going too far on a limb on that and other questions, but just trying to appear moderate. And then, of course, the great they, magic they, ingredient lost, for the Democrats. They lost ground with women, though, didn't they, compared to 2018? Right. There's going to be swings everywhere. Uh, but I think, again, probably where it counted in the competitive race, not only is that swing less than in some of the other demographics, but I think where it counted, they, they got the votes they needed. And um, I do believe that the magic ingredient for the for the Republican Democrats here was that they had this great interaction effect between the sort of political terrain set by the in, insertion of the Dobbs decision and other uh, sort of things or Republicans associated with the weren't popular. Uh, and then you had Trump intervening to enable the most unelectable and extreme candidates to be uh, selected to run against the Democrats. And I think that made a huge, huge difference. So uh, it was going to tilt the, dire- the terrain in the Democrats favor to some extent the Dobbs decision, a few other things, but the magic ingredient I really do believe is Trump's intervention to the election and his ability to help the Republicans select bad candidates and uh, sort of put his paw print all over the election because people basically uh, detest Trump, particularly college educated voters. So I think you put all those things together and it starts to come into focus as an election where the Democrats did a great deal better than they should have, where they made the election about crazy Republicans and crazy ideas instead of about their own record, particularly on a national level. Donald Trump has a reverse Midas touch. Whatever he touches goes to hell. We have a substack that we put out with our podcast, and one of the things that we wrote was that it wasn't so much that the Democrats won this midterm, it was that the Republicans lost it. So I guess one of the big questions Mm -hmm. in my mind is... What are the wrong lessons that very triumphant Democrats are taking from the fact that there wasn't a red wave? Well, I think the wrong lesson is very clear, and it's already being taken. <laughs> and it was well expressed by uh, our, our great leader, Joe Biden, who said, what do I propose to change going forward? Nothing. I mean, I think the basic theory of the case would be, you know, we ran a great campaign. We've had a great two years. You did a lot of great stuff. The, Demo- the Republicans' culture war uh, attacks are failing. The abortion issue is going to vex them forever. There's absolutely no need for us to fix any of our underlying problems on things like crime and immigration, race, gender, you know, inflation, whatever. I mean, I just think it's um, I think they believe they can ride this anti-MAGA, you know, save democracy, save abortion rights kind of approach forward and through into 2024 and do absolutely nothing about their underlying vulnerabilities with some of the issues I mentioned and the general problems they're having with working class and Hispanic voters. If, in fact, it's a long-term secular problem that they're losing voters among these demographics and those demographics are are critical to their future success, particularly if you look into the 2024 election, you look at the Senate races, you look at a lot of other things, you, you see the Democrats are disadvantaged by where they're bleeding voters among these demographics. And you know, sort of the logical thing to do would be to try to fix it. But I don't see the incentive for fixing it uh, for the Democrats, especially as the election is being interpreted by many people in the party. It's basically uh, we we took it to the Republicans. We showed what crazy MAGA semi-fascist party they are. And I think we should just, uh, you know, sort of press the accelerator all the way through the 2024 election. 
So maybe I'm wrong about that, but but I do think that's a big temptation for a lot of Democrats. So it sounds like the anti-MAGA strategy, while it worked in this election, is masking a deeper substantive problem for Democrats that they're not addressing because they don't have to because the MAGA strategy is still active as long as Trump is active. Right. And remember, Mark, the MAGA candidates that the Democratic Party backed, unbelievable. Right. In the short term, it worked. But what happens if the Republicans regain their senses and and (laughs) Donald Trump suddenly disappears? You know, I mean, I don't think that strategy is going to work against Ron DeSantis. It's not going to work against some of the other people who might run. I agree. Once MAGA is de-inserted from at least in the person of Trump from the election, what happens to Democrats? Well, I, I think nothing good at this point. I think it presents them with challenges they are very ill-prepared to handle. I touched on that in my latest Substack, uh, where I talked about the Hispanic and working-class voter problems continuing, and did raise the issue about uh, what happens if they don't have Trump to kick around anymore. Um, and I, going a little further in that direction, in a piece I had coming out in the Wall Street Journal that I titled. Who knows what they'll title it? But I called it the Democrats' Ron DeSantis problem, which is exactly that. If the de- Democrats are confronted with more electable, smarter, more competent candidates up and down the ticket, what, what do they do? Uh, I think their whole strategy becomes a lot more difficult to implement. And I think that's a situation they could face and they're not prepared for. And they, in a sense, they don't even want to be prepared for it. They, they sort of they're, they're comfortable with the current situation. As I, I think about it, it's sort of a codependent relationship between mainstream (laughs) Democrats now and and Trump and Trumpism. They know how to leverage uh, those weaknesses to their advantage. And they love having him around to attack. They love, you know, the media is always all over. You know, there's, you really can't turn the page of any regular newspaper now without reading a long story about election deniers and tax on democracy and and what have you. So they're very comfortable doing that. They've got a good echo chamber going uh, for those attacks. And they rode that approach to a relatively successful uh, midterm election. And I think that Democrats are loath to say it, right? I mean, but I, I think a lot of them think, and some of them will say, you know, they would prefer Trump to be the candidate in 2024 because oh, he'd be would. easier to beat. Just like they just like they pushed a lot of these crazy MAGA Trumpy candidates and some of these elections for this, this cycle because they thought they'd be easier to beat. So, so that's what I mean about codependent. I mean, Trump loves it. You know, he loves being the center of attention. I mean, and in a sense, these um, the Democrats are sort of his allies in keeping him at the center of attention because they they sort of need him, whether they acknowledge it or not, because that's what enables their strategy to work as well as it does at the current time. And I don't think they're thinking of very far ahead in the chess game, so to speak. You know, like, okay, what happens if Republicans sort of come to their senses? Maybe someone else comes to the fore. They moderate their message and some things. Gee, what do we do then? They're yeah, not well, thinking about that. Well, kind of a don't. safe bet that, they, that we won't. <laughs> they don't need to because Trump is such a big mouth, seemingly intent on this. But it, you remind me of that great old line about girls who, you know, in college like to go to bars with a bunch of ugly girls. So they stood out. I mean, that's really the Democratic <laughs> Party, isn't it? They're like out with all the ugly Trump girls. No, I was just going to mention in terms of the relative ugliness question. Um, you know, I think it's the MAGA, it's the MAGA people and the crazier folks who stand out in that context. But it's important to note, and this touches back to some of the things we, we've just been talking about, is if you go through the AP, uh, the, the vote cast survey, and I'm sure the exit polls are too different, and there are a number of questions asked about 
you know, which party is more, ex- you know, extreme, which party tolerates extremists and their rank too much, ranks too much. How favorable do you feel about parties? The Democrats do know better than Republicans. They think voters think they're equally extreme. And in the Republican Party, even at a slightly more favorable rating among voters in the Democratic Party. So the party is not strong. It's that the candidates who are put forward by the Republicans sort of put their worst face forward, as it were. I mean, they make themselves a, they're sort of painting a target on their back. God, and that's this, not this smart analogy politics. goes really far then, the ugly girl in the bar, I'm sorry to say. So, but I want to ask you more <laughs> about this, this moderate question, mm-hmm. because I mean, certainly all of the analysis or a lot of the analysis that we've seen since Tuesday suggests that, in fact, you are right. It is moderates who win the day. Mm-hmm. It's, it's not the MAGA people, but it's also not the Ilhan Omars and the AOCs who didn't do a single favor to their party by flipping a single seat towards themselves. That's what I want to ask, yep. because, you know, even as the Democratic Party has its center of gravity has, to my mind, shifted quite far left, I wonder, mm-hmm. what is this new class of Democrats in the House and Senate look like, mostly the House, because obviously there's much more churn there. Do they reflect that drift to the left on the part of the party, or are they, in fact, the old school moderate Democrats that win elections? You mean the people who won in competitive races? Yeah. Yeah, well, no, they, they're not the, you know, they're not the progressive caucus types. By and large, the the average progressive caucus member is in a, you know, D plus double digits or more, or up into the 20s district, right? I mean, the uh, the competitive uh, can- candidates who are in competitive districts who managed to hold the line were, by and large, relatively moderate. Now, they may be pulled somewhat to the left by the overall uh, sort of coloration of the caucus at this point, but they're basically relatively moderate, and they tried to run fairly moderate campaigns. They've tried to keep tightly focused on a small set of issues. A lot of them didn't even talk too much about, you know, this ultra-MAGA you know, fascists at the gate kind of thing. It was more like, okay, there's abortion and there's this and there's that. And, you know, this crazy thing, this other, this candidate says, uh, and, you know, we want to get back to normal here. No more nuts, please. Um, So uh, I think that uh, that's underappreciated to some extent about how, you know, the candidates who held the line managed to hold the line. They were not AOC types and not even very influenced or interested in that kind of politics. They were interested in drawing some fairly clear lines against some unpopular positions that they could associate with, with some of their Republican opponents. And that, that's smart politics. And it's also what happened in 2018, as we know. Um, you were mentioning Ilhan Omar and AOC elected in 2018. As you point out, they didn't flip any districts. They were on, you know, plus 20 Democratic districts. They replaced some liberal incumbents, two of them. Uh, and yet the story of the 2018 election, as I think I talked about in the Atlantic article, was centered a lot around these really left-wing candidates who got elected in really left-wing urban districts, right? As opposed to all the moderates who were really the ones who, who delivered the, uh, the big seat change for the Democrats who won all those races. So it's really quite extraordinary how these things happen. And to some extent, I think it'll happen again, because I think that the left of the party will seek to take credit for the way in which the more moderate candidates manage to hold the line for the Democrats in competitive districts. And I think that's a bit of a misrepresentation of what really happened. So, you know, after 2016, we started hearing about there was this this great realignment of the parties where 
Donald Trump brought in the working class, not just white working class, but largely white working class, uh, away from the Democrats and into the Republican Party. And the Democrats were becoming Mm -hmm. a party, a coalition of minorities and coastal elites, right, urban elites. You saw college-educated suburban women in 2018 and 2020 who defected from the from the Republicans to the Democrats and gave them their victories in those races. How does that realignment look after Tuesday? I think it looks fairly similar. Uh, as I pointed out, we did see a continuing move of working class and Hispanic voters away from the uh, Democratic Party. Uh, David Shore in an interview has done some additional analysis on this, and he seems to think, and I think he's right, that there was an additional move toward uh, among Hispanics toward the Republicans it, just in this election, and it suggests a certain durability with some of these shifts among Hispanic voters. So um, I think that we're seeing this basic parameters of the coalition remain the same, right? I mean, the Repu- Republicans still have their white working class voters, but now they're getting non-white working class voters. I mean, they, look, they got, I think, 19% of the vote among black men. I'm sure that was mostly working class voters. So, so things are happening in that respect that the Democrats are becoming, you know, are still a party and are becoming more so the party that is really to some extent dominated by college educated liberals, suburban women, uh, what have you. Those are the ones who really put their paw print on the party, really define it in people's eyes, and some are a sort of burgeoning source of electoral strength for them. Certainly their source of strength at this point is not the working class. Uh, it's certainly not, you know, sort of the traditional base of the Democratic Party. It's more this new and evolving base that evolved in reaction to Trump and Trump, the Trump, uh, the Republican Party, now that it's past Trump, is still keeping a lot of that that character, that populist, working class oriented character, and is continuing to do relatively poorly among the more educated parts of the country, the coastal areas, the metro areas, and so on. Um, so I think that that's a real thing. I don't know if that answers your question or not, but well, the, I guess uh, the question would be: you know, it looks like the the Republican side of that realignment is holding, right? In the sense that the working class, you know, voted overwhelmingly for Republicans on on Tuesday, right? But it's but, changing the, the the racial composition of they're doing better. Yeah, that's what I mean. Uh, so like of, the, yeah, if the yeah, Democrats yeah, okay. are supposed to be a coalition of minorities and and elites, the minorities are sort of slowly migrating to the Republicans. So that part of the coalition is weakening on the Democratic side. It seems like that's not a sustainable strategy for the Democrats over the long run, particularly if if Trump isn't there to scare the, the suburban women anymore at some point. Right, you know, right. And, it, and there were some polls showing before the election, I don't know how it turned out, that suburban women were actually tacking back to Republicans. Yeah, I don't know how that ended up coming out in the final analysis, but they did gain again among women uh, broadly 10 points, according to the Fox voter analysis. So is that is that? Yeah, I mean, you look at suburban college educated women, though, and they were still very good mm-hmm. for the Democrats. It's a matter of relative strength. Right. I mean, there was a swing between 2020 and 2022 or between 2018 and 2022 toward the Republicans overall. Yeah. So almost all demographics are going to show some shift toward the Republicans. So the question is, where are those shifts the big, the biggest, sort of most consequential? And I do think that Democrats did relatively well among suburban college-educated women in particular, which was quite helpful for them in terms of holding the line. But, I mean, your broader point that the strategy the Democrats <clears throat> appear to be pursuing is not a sustainable one, I think is absolutely correct. And it 
as I pointed out, it, it's, it reflects a sort of codependent relationship with Trump, Trumpism, and the Trumpy Republican Party. They're not prepared for anything that's even mildly different, you know. Uh, and, you know, parties like to win, and they typically do, albeit reluctantly, move back to the center eventually. Um, they're, not, they're not ready for it um, because their strategy and the coalition they have built is not, is not adaptable in that respect, or at least not adaptable without some serious work, which they seem uninterested in, in doing. So as they move into 2024 and confront an incredibly unfavorable Senate map where they have just one red or purple state senator after another to defend, and the Republicans really hardly have any, um, you know, what do they do then? What do they do if their candidate, uh, the candidate they face in 2024 is not Trump, but rather DeSantis or Youngkin or something like that. I mean, we, we, don't, we don't know what's going to happen, but we do know, I think, that they're poorly prepared for it. And I do worry, as a Democrat, that the debate, the, the sort of takeaways people are going to get out of this election are not going to be helpful to, 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 that, uh, to the rethink that might be necessary to prepare for uh, the future. I want to ask you about the future, but I have a question beforehand because some of the writing done, I think, is really fascinating and hasn't gotten enough attention. And this is what you've already mentioned a couple times already in our discussion is this defection of Hispanics as a block towards the Republicans. And we we saw this, interestingly, with DeSantis, although, you know, Mm -hmm. I think people will want to suggest it's a one off, you know. But he also won Osceola County. He won Miami-Dade. You know, these are places where Democrats have dominated historically. So he's not only winning with Cubans. In other words, he's winning with Puerto Ricans. He's winning with... Yes, exactly. Exactly. Very important point. But so why? Why do you think? That's what I would would love for our listeners to hear. Yeah. Well, I think um, his mojo comes from a, a number of sources, but maybe you could just sum them all up as saying he's a very clever very competent politician who practices effective governance and knows when he deals in cultural war issues to pick the popular side and not push it any farther. So that, you know, so DeSantis is attractive to Hispanics because that's who they are. They want effective governance. They want upward mobility. They want their jobs to be there. They, they don't want the economy closed down for too long. They don't want their kids taught gender ideology in kindergarten. I think the temptation is to say that this is a DeSantis or a Florida phenomenon, but it's not. I mean, what you've written suggests this is happening all over the country, which means there are broader reasons than just DeSantis. What are those? Well, the broader reason is that if the extent Hispanics were tied to the Democratic Party by just a perception that they were friendlier to immigrants, but importantly, that they were the party that is most oriented toward helping the Hispanic community get ahead in the world, because that's what they want. I think that perception is, is weakening. Um, you know, if this is a constituency that broadly speaking all over the country is, you know, socially moderate to conservative, patriotic, upwardly mobile, mostly concerned about jobs, family, health care, effective schools, public safety, and so on. I think the Democrats brand and those things has really been weakened. And I think they're viewed as being a bit alien by a lot of especially Hispanic working class voters at this point. So the default assumption that I vote Democratic, even if I'm a moderate to conservative working class Latino, I think that has weakened. And not just in Florida, in Nevada, in Arizona, 
uh, in neighborhoods in Chicago and New York and Minneapolis and Detroit and so on. Wherever you find working class Hispanics, typically you do find this weakening of identification and support for the Democratic Party because the Democratic Party is not oriented at this point toward being a working class party. And they are a working class constituency. So, uh, you know, their basic attitude is, you know, are you sure that you're really on our side? Are you sure that you really share our values? And, and what have you done for me lately? <laughs> so, and the Democrats uh, so I think there's a certain Latinx. laziness. <laughs> yeah, right. And uh, I mean, the Latinx, you know, most people aren't even aware of it, but it's just it's just indicative of the sort of cluelessness of the sort of culturally dominant liberal elements in the Democratic Party. Uh, including among some Hispanic activists, which is just like not where people are coming from. Uh, I think Hispanics are willing to tolerate the fact that the median Democrat or Democratic politician was somewhat to their left uh, on social issues, somewhat more liberal, but there's liberal and then there's liberal. (laughs) Uh, And the Democrats have gone quite far in a direction that makes them as I say, somewhat alien to these working class Hispanic voters who just have much more down to earth, mundane concerns. And so I think that uh, that is what the Democrats really need to get in touch with and really think carefully about. I mean, are we still a working class party? If we're not reaching working class voters, including Hispanics, how do we do it? How are we out of sync with them? Can we talk their language? You know, what is really important to them? Well, I don't think, think we value hard work. So, I mean, all these things are very troubling questions for the Democrats. And I think it's a lot more, a lot easier to say ultra MAGA abortion rights, January 6th. Yeah. Talk a little bit about how immigration plays with Hispanics, because it's an interesting phenomenon that the counties in like southern Texas, which are nearest the border, are where Republicans are gaining with Hispanics. And the Democrats always seem to think that, well, we're the more welcoming party to immigrants and illegal immigrants coming over here from who are who are overwhelmingly Hispanic. That's a winning issue for us with Hispanic voters. And it sounds like it's not. And also that immigration is the polls show wasn't even the number one issue for these voters. No, it was economic not. issues. How does, how does immigration yep. and sort of the crisis at the southern border uh, affecting the Hispanic? Well, I think it's very important to draw a distinction between legal and illegal immigration. Yeah. <laughs> I think Hispanics are broadly supportive of a fairly liberal regime on, on legal immigration. Uh, they would like to see, and certainly they don't want people mistreated at the border, regardless of who they are. But uh, they're actually not that enthusiastic about illegal immigration. They hate the uh, these people who vote are sent. Yeah, they're, <laughs> they I mean, they're, they're, many of them. I, Right. It's a it's a big mess at the border and people are pouring across. Obviously, people are abusing the asylum system. And for hardworking Hispanics who are already here as citizens who are working their tail off. I mean, I, 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 it's actually not a winning issue for the Democrats to appear to be extremely lenient on on this whole issue and to basically sort of do nothing about border security. Most Hispanics are for more border security, not less. Um, a lot of Hispanics prefer the, for the Republicans on the general issue of immigration, if you ask it that way, and certainly about illegal immigration. So um, it's not that there's a 80% majority in favor of, of a super tough approach to immigration among Hispanics, but I think there is a majority support for a you know, reasonably uh, tough and serious approach to illegal immigration and putting the focus on legal immigration. And I think there's not a vast majority in favor of Republican approach to immigration, but there's not a tiny minority either. 
I mean, this is this is really what's happening with the Hispanic voting population writ large. It is not that they become Republican. They just become much less significantly less Democratic. So if you're starting to push 40 percent of the Hispanic vote or more in a lot of these areas, and we saw 40 percent nationwide in 2022, then it tells you that there's a big minority of Hispanics out there who do not sort of think in the same way that liberal Democrats do about the Republican Party, which is their you know, an iniquitous den of, of fascist plotters, right? So they, and that they hate all immigrants. That's not how they think about the Republicans there. They have much more nuanced views. I mean, this is a problem for both political parties, right? They just can't wrap their minds around how complicated the views of a lot of their people they purport to represent are. They have many different conflicting points of views on things and complex views about how to approach uh, an issue, for example, like immigration. Amen to that. Couldn't agree more. So I want to ask you one of my absolutely unknowable questions, but that's why mm-hmm. that, that's why I've got the microphone and you on the line, so I can victimize you in this way. Right. Okay, as, as shoot. Looking at the, no, no, he has no idea what's coming. He victimizes right, me every podcast, oh, yeah, so I feel, feel, feel blessed. Uh, so so t- Tuesday night, I turned to one of my friends and said, my bet is at the White House right now, Joe Biden is going, see, my next big decision, I'm running in 2024 because this proves that I'm a winner. What do you think? Is he going to run in 2024? Uh, I'd say yes. I mean, I thought before uh, this election, and I think probably even more so after it. I think if the Democrats had gotten their clock cleaned as, you know, there was a reasonably plausible case for. Um, I think he would have been under some pressure and had some second thoughts himself about running. But now that they've had an historically good midterm election for an incumbent party, I mean, I, he's, he's looking pretty cocky to me and he's not exactly trying to hide the fact he's kind of interested in running again. And if he uh, declares, uh, ain't nobody going to stop him. So exit question for me. I want to drill down just a little bit on this whole the emerging Democrat majority of non-white voters, because you were obviously one of the the original thinkers of this. And you've since Mm -hmm. said that it wasn't the case. It's been picked up on the right. It was originally an idea on the left and it's been picked up on the right by sort of the nativist right. Where they're saying, where they're mm-hmm. the Marjorie Taylor Greens and all the other people who go out and speak at these rallies and say how they, you know, the Democrats are trying to bring in all these immigrants. To, it's become the great replacement theory, right? And right, so yes, the, de- yes. the Democrats mm-hmm. have sort of thrown it off, and the the far right has picked it up. And unfortunately, it sounds like when you when you look at a president who not only has he lifted all of the successful border control policies of his predecessor, but now he's showing no concern whatsoever for what's happening in the border, refuses to say it's a crisis, and then he wants to lift Title 42. Even reasonable mm-hmm, people right. look at that and say— Mark, explain what Title 42 Title 42 is the COVID-era health measure that allows the Customs and Border Patrol to deport people not under the normal rules, and about half of the illegal immigrants who were coming across the border were sent back under Title 42. But even reasonable mm-hmm. people start looking at that and saying, they're bringing in a bunch of Democrat voters to replace us. What's going on with this, and how do we stop it? Because it's really troubling. Right. Well, a couple of things about that. I mean, I think one that's worth pointing out is that when John Judas and I wrote the book, and we did talk about the increasing non-white share of voters driven mostly by Hispanics. Um, We were not talking about something that we thought was a purposive strategy on the part of the Democrats. It was rather that that was the way the country was evolving and the trends that were happening 
and therefore they would have certain political implications. And we didn't think it was being engineered by, by anybody. Um, and I would say in terms of the situation today, I think a better explanation for the Democrats sort of laxness, um, refusal to do too much about border security at this point, trying to lift title 42 is it's, you know, this is today's democratic party. They're under tremendous pressure from the activists and, and, sort of the more progressive members of the administration, their staffs and the people in cabinet positions and so on. There's a big constituency in the Democratic Party for keeping immigration extremely liberal. And if that means keeping a porous and a lax border uh, regime in place, um, they're fine with that. And I think Biden is afraid to cross them. He's like a deer in the headlights in this. I mean, they know full well that this is a bad issue for them. And this is probably bad immigration policy. But I think they're afraid to to cross the groups, quote unquote, and, and create a kerfuffle in the in the Democratic Party. So he's shying away from that. But I don't think it's a conscious strategy on his part or anybody's part, really, to create more Democrats. I just think that there's a really strong pro you know, sort of semi open borders caucus. Uh, and, and sort of set of actors in and around the Democratic Party who are who are pushing that. Um, in fact, I think as far as those people are concerned, the problem is in that the border security is is too lax. It's like it's too strict. I mean, they would they would like a further liberalization of the regime and almost to formalize a quasi open borders kind of policy. Uh, and now it's not formalized; it's just de facto. Yeah. But the advocates can live with that. And the Biden administration, I think, has decided they're not going to cross them. Ah, that's what I like. Courage and leadership. Rui, as usual, you <laughs> right, have well, been, yeah. <laughs> you've been fantastic. And we're so grateful that you are willing to take the time and so grateful that you are one of our colleagues at AEI. Yeah, yeah. It's been a ton of fun. I love being here. Uh, and I urge all your listeners, of course, to check out the Liberal Patriot and, uh, and see what they think. They're going to like it as much as I know Mark and I do. Absolutely. Thanks Take for care. joining us. Okay, fantastic. So I thought what Rui said was really interesting because, of course, he with John Judas are the authors of this book, which laid out this emerging Democrat majority based on non-white voters. And as he pointed out, he wasn't saying it was a deliberate strategy. He was just recognizing a trend, which he's now seen is not happening because a lot of these non-white voters are voting Republican and moving through the Republican column. But the problem is, is that this idea that that this is happening and that it's deliberate has been embraced by the nativist right. And you've got Marjorie Taylor Greene and some of these other nut jobs out there basically saying that the Democrats are trying to bring in Hispanic voters and bring in non-white voters in order to replace white Americans and build a permanent Democratic majority. And the, the theory and, you know, our friend Walter Russell Mead actually wrote about this after the Trump election. And it, it, let me just quote what he said in Foreign Affairs. He wrote this, this column called The Jacksonian Revolt. He said, hopeful talk among Democrats about an emerging Democratic majority based on secular decline in the percentage of the voting population that is white was heard in Jacksonian America as support for a deliberate transformation of American demographics. When Jacksonian elites hear strong support for high levels of immigration, their seeming lack of concern about illegal immigration, they see an elite out to banish them from power politically, culturally, and demographically. And so I think there's a segment of the population that feels this is happening. What's actually happening is, is that a lot of these minorities who come here are voting Republican. We're seeing an increasing Not number a majority, of Hispanics, but, a, but, a but certainly but, but, a but, growing but segment. But a growing segment. And the hostility uh, in the nativist right to like refugees is just utterly befuddling to me because if you think that these Afghans 
when the Afghan people who come here and are going to vote for the Democrats when they be when their children become citizens and grow up, the people who handed their country over to the Taliban, the Afghans are going to be like the Vietnamese voters, which is the most consistently Republican voting block, minority voting block in the entire country. So I don't think it's true. But when you have the president of the United States who has this border policy that, as Rui said, is driven by these left-wing groups that he just wants, doesn't want to confront, that is an open border, that is literally millions of people streaming in into the country, it's fueling the Great Replacement Theory on the right. The left has sort of abandoned the Great Replacement Theory that, as John and Rui laid it out, but it's been embraced by the right, and they're fueling it by not controlling the southern border. Right. I've been thinking about this a lot this week, about the, the growing alliance between the racist left and the racist right. right? <laughs> the racist left that talks about people of color as if they're one block with no mind, that talks about Hispanics, you know, it, with their silly, woke Latinx expression that many Hispanics... Which is racist. Latino Hispanic voters, which is what they want to be called overwhelmingly in polls say they want they don't want to be called Latinx and these white college educated liberals insist on calling them that it's racist right. you don't call people what they don't want to be called and then the you know the replacement theory guys on the right who are nakedly racist and who somehow believe you know that this is a country that was built on people like them except they don't remember that they too were immigrants to this country. It is, I said it in, the, in, in our discussion, it is a scourge in our country that we have this coalition and we should, we should be brutal and call it a coalition of the racist nativist left and right who have these ideas about people based on their nation of origin, their religion, and the color of their skin. It is disgusting. And we should call them out, whether they're Democrats or Republicans. And the problem is, increasingly, it's only people like you and me and Rui who are really, really loud about calling this out. Because people like Biden, as Rui said, are afraid. They're cowed into it, right? And people like Trump believe that this is where their their support is coming from so they don't want to call them out it's just depressing and it's you know what else it is it's un-american i want to recash our orban podcast but this is the great thing about the united states of america compared and this is why we are the greatest nation on earth is because we're the only nation in history founded on an idea not on blood not on soil an idea and a, a creed that says that we believe that all men emphasize all, which means all races, all religions, and all the rest, all are, created, are created equal and endowed by the creator with an inalienable right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Anyone who believes in that can be an American. So you, you can be black, you can be white, you can be red, you can be purple, you can be whatever gender on the, on the, the scale of 30 genders that are available <laughs> to, the, that you want. It's all about accepting the creed. And the assumption that... People who come here won't accept that creed and also will become, you know, liberal robots is racist and un-American. I think gross. I think they, they came here for a reason because they believe this is the greatest place on earth. Right. They came here <laughs> they for opportunity. They, and they believe in our creed. Right. Well, this they, is why you and I are such big, big supporters of legal immigration. Exactly. And why it is so obnoxious to assume that Hispanics in America are all pro-illegal immigration. I can tell you, I have talked to you a large number of people who all believe that illegal immigration is wrong, even 
ironically, people who came here illegally and, <laughs> and, and subsequently got their, got their papers and their visas, even they believe it's wrong. It is remarkable. And, you know, rule of law is, is a thing. So, you but, know, but, but, but look, we're here to talk about the, the democratic losses and the democratic, and what the one thing that I, you know, want to emphasize, because I agree with you wholeheartedly about the vileness of this replacement theory and how it's been adopted from the left to the right. But I do think that we need to spend more time thinking about how Trump is the engine of victory for the Democratic Party. Well, you're absolutely right. And so this is the thing, is that the MAGA strategy is masking all of these flaws within the Democratic coalition, within the Democratic strategy. People didn't vote as much as in any other situation. If you didn't have MAGA hanging over this election, they would have been routed because people blame them for the economy. They blame them for the border crisis. They blame them for the crime wave. Saved by Donald again. You know, and so at some point, can we take the good policies that Donald Trump implemented as president and put them in the hands of someone who doesn't offend millions and millions of Americans with every I guess you can't call them tweets anymore. Truths or whatever. Truth whatever social. Whatever you have. call a truth social. I don't know. I've never post. seen it. You see, I've never been on Truth Social, but I. But you see it quoted in the media, so you know that he's out there posting on that. We just got to move beyond this and stop letting the Democrats get away with these. It's enable. This is enabling socialism. Literally, it's an because they it's giving them cover to keep doing their spending and keep moving this country down towards a bigger government, less free, less safe, and and less prosperous path. I've said it in my Washington Post column. I'll say it again here. The path out of the political wilderness for Republicans is in Florida, and it's not in Mar-a-Lago. Amen again. Hey, folks, thanks for listening. Don't forget, as Mark always says, if you've gotten this far, you must <laughs> like us. Subscribe. Hit that button right now. Pick up your phone, please, and hit the button where it says subscribe, and hit the other button where you can share it. Share it with somebody. <laughs> Take care. Take care. Let us know what topics you'd like us to cover. You can get in touch with the show by emailing us at whatthehell at AEI.org. Or you can reach us on Twitter. I'm at D. Pletka. And I'm at Mark Thiessen. That's Mark with a C. Please rate and review the podcast. If you like the show, please subscribe, share it, comment on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you're listening to this. Thanks for listening. (laughs) 